0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Andrew Peterson is well known as a recording artist, a songwriter, producer, filmmaker, publisher, and author. He's also the founder and the leader of The Rabbit Room, which has published 30 books and seeks to foster Christian community through the arts and a community of those who are Christians committed to the arts. He's released over 10 albums, including Resurrection Letters Volume 1, The Burning Edge of Dawn, and Counting Stars. He's known for songs like Is He Worthy, Dancing in the Minefields, and The Dark Before the Dawn. He's also the author of The Wingfeather Saga, a series of four fantasy adventure novels. The fourth novel, The Warden and the Wolf King, won Children's Book of the Year in 2015 from World Magazine. His annual Christmas tour is celebrating its 20th anniversary this season with an all-new recording of his album Behold the Lamb of God which tells the story of Scripture culminating in the coming of Christ. His newest book is Adorning the Dark, Thoughts on Community, Calling, and the Mystery of Making. It won the Gospel Coalition's 2019 Book Award for Arts and Culture. Andrew and his wife, Jamie, live in Nashville, Tennessee. They have three children. Andrew Peterson, welcome to Thinking in Public. Andrew, most people know you by your music, but behind that music is an entire worldview, uh, a heart, a mind, and uh, it, it's not all that often that we get to see the heart, the mind, and the thinking of the artist. So this this was an act of uh, of, of a gift uh, to your audience, so to speak. Had this been on your mind for a long time, or did you just reach a point where you said, I need to write this book?
1: Well, I you know, I, I have been—my um, sh- imagination has been shaped by a few books on— what kind of creativity and faith and how those things work together. There's some really great ones like the uh, mind of the maker by Dorothy Sayers and walking on water by Madeline Langle And even, even the Tolkien essay on fairy stories is a, is a kind of towering uh, work exercise in like the theology of storytelling and that kind of, all those things have shaped me. And I've thought over the years that, uh, you know, Oh, it would be fun to write a memoir that kind of, not only was about like the, the, a theology of creativity, but like a, a a story that showed here, here's where I screwed up and here are the things that I learned. But then, uh, every time I thought of it, I realized that I was, (laughs) I, uh, I didn't really have enough to say, you know what I mean? Like I was, it just didn't feel like I was, uh, had enough under the belt yet or something. And so, um, I guess it was about five years ago, I went into the studio and, uh, And was about to make another record and um, didn't have enough songs and was in that, you know, in the middle of that white hot panic uh, of people waiting on you for something, you know. Uh, And so I decided as a way to kind of like shake loose the writer's block, uh, I I decided to just journal in real time exactly what I was feeling, like the internal struggle that comes with trying to create something. And so I just journaled enough to kind of get the... you know, the car push started and then, you know, I finished the album and forgot about it. And just a few years ago, I looked back at that journal and thought to myself, huh, I don't remember ever reading a book on the creative process that was as frank about the the fear and the, the voices in your head uh, that kind of wrestled with what it mean, means to be an image bearer uh, who's trying to create stuff. So I just decided that was that maybe it was time to, to give it a go. Um, all that said, I've never been so scared for a book to come out.
0: And you're scared because it's an act of exposure,
1: yeah, very much so, yeah it was it's like with my songwriting has has always been pretty pretty confessional, um but it, you know I'm still kind of uh dressing it up in a song, you know it's poetry and right. music. um this felt like it was just like, well, here are my thoughts for better or worse um and i I hope like if if people hated the book then i then i would it would be harder to distance myself from it, you know
0: I have never written music. Uh, but I have written millions of words. And uh, Uh there's one anecdote in in your book that caught me by surprise because I identify with it immediately. You had written some words to yourself and your parents found them years later and read them. And Mm. you said you felt naked. And uh, I think that's the exposure of every author or artist. It is that at some point until you are ready, anyone else seeing this, uh, in the creative process is an act of exposure.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, and you know it's a uh, it's it's scary it's this weird uh battle between there's there must be something in us that wants to be seen. You know what I mean? There's a part right. like I remember seeing Meryl Streep on David Letterman one time and and she was like, "Well, being an actress, you know, most people start because they want to show off." <laughs> you know, and there is some there is some brokenness in in a person who says Uh, I'm going to try to write these songs and tell my story and sing in the coffee house. You know, when you're in college, there's a, there's a, there's a shadow side of that where it's like, yeah, I want to sing to help people, but you're also going, I want to sing because I want to prove that I exist. Um, And so I think over the course of a long career, the Lord kind of redeems that stuff. Like he kind of, he like slowly helps you see like what, what art is for. And so uh, it, it moves from being uh, like, too confessional, like, uh, you know, I'm sure that you could look back as I could look back and see moments 20 years ago where I was like, wow, I kind of overshared right there. I don't, I think that was more for me than it was for the the listener, um, or the audience. And, um, and so I, part of growing up as an artist or as a writer is beginning to realize that like the gift that you have is not for you. It's not self-expression. It's, it's in order, it's a way of loving. And so, uh, I guess that's the thing is like the, the exposure the 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 courage that it takes to like bear your heart is uh it can come from either um kind of a barreling into the room like a bull in a china shop and saying look at my heart everybody and that's not courage so much as just uh, a kind of arrogance I think um, but then there's another kind where you're going I'm embarrassed by this but I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to share it and uh, uh for the edification of the people who might listen
0: you used the word creative a moment ago. And uh, or create you you were using it as a verb. At one point in your book, you kind of protest the use of creative as a noun. That's becoming more popular uh, in, in our society. But uh, what w- what what is creation to you? When you you speak of uh, creativity, what what is it that you believe you are doing as an artist?
1: Well, I think this is lifted uh, whole cloth from Tolkien. Um, but in his essay on fairy stories, he he makes the argument that. Um, one of the ways that we bear God's image is that we create and he call he, he coins the word sub Um, so, you know, God is the creator with a capital C and one of the ways that his children bear his image is that we are little creators. Like we, we also, it's kind of like God, God spoke the world into being, um, and, and then created these people to tend to that world and kind of said, go and do likewise. Yeah. And, and so there's this human tendency, uh, that I would even say is a calling to, to build new worlds, whether that's sermons or decorating your living room or, uh, writing fantasy novels, you know, like all of these things are expressions of the image of God kind of spilling over in us. And I think all humans have it. So that's, that's creativity. It's not, it's not, um, out of nothing, like in the way that God does it. It's out of, it's out of God. It's out of what he has made. Uh, everything that we make is a rearrangement of something that he made in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very important point, and especially when we consider the fact that uh, in a secular mind, uh, creation is, uh, is more ex nihilo in the minds of the people who are uh, calling themselves creators. There's very little acknowledgement of the fact that uh, God, the creator, made human beings in his image. I love Tolkien's expression there of, the, of being sub-creators, but he's given us all this stuff from which we create, and an imagination— that uh, that, so far as we know, rather confidently, no other animal has. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. so it is an act of glory to God to to create. But one yeah. of the things you deal with in in your writings is imagination, and you really lean into this. It's, it's not like it's a separate chapter. It's 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 throughout the entire book. But you know, Christians have had, I, I would say, not for irrational reasons. A certain deep concern through two thousand years about that imagination. So, h- how do you think about the uh, the human imagination as a believer and as an artist? Uh, what what should you set it loose to do, and what do you fear it might do?
1: Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, as far as setting it loose, like I think that. There's a, there's a redeemed imagination. You know, it, it makes me think of uh, C.S. Lewis when he talked about how, you know, he was in the train station as a young man and he read the George MacDonald book, and it said that it baptized his imagination. Um, that you know, our, the imagination. I I can speak from experience. It can be polluted with some pretty terrible things, and uh, and uh, it's a muscle that, in a sense, that that you can exercise or or it can kind of go into atrophy and i think that part of what i think the calling of the artist is is to try really hard to wake up people's imagination to like one of the things that I, or to broaden their imagination to 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 uh kind of if if their people's imagination but thanks to you know just kind of the the zeitgeist the, the um there's like this sleeping giant and everyone that is this incredible uh uh what is it i think cs lewis said that the the imagination is the organ of meaning yeah. and uh and so there's this sleeping giant in everybody that, that can um if you if you let it broaden your imagination help and fill you with wonder and i think wonder is one of the things that points us to christ um yeah. like really looking at the world for the amazing place that it is and so i, I think that's that's the thing is like um, imagination as we all know can be used for good or evil um but the the uh what i hope happens is that um, you know, whether it's through art or through music, that it it's like taking a stick and poking a sleeping bear and going, "Hey, guess what? There's there's this <laughs> there's this amazing thing in you that 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 can uh, that can actually the horizon isn't where you think it is." You know what I mean? Yeah. And so the imagination is one of the ways that we can wake people up to that.
0: I, I think we have to acknowledge we're having this conversation in the middle of uh, contemporary English-speaking evangelicalism, which is a subset of of Protestantism in the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a subset of the Reformation, which was very concerned about the imagination, uh, uh-huh. because uh, the, the Roman Catholic tradition, especially medieval speculation, and uh, the encounter between the East and the West, uh, I mean, y- you you have been in many places, I know even from reading your book, where you can see evidence of the uh, imagination among Christians uh, uncontrolled. And so mm-hmm. you, you had in Protestantism, a, a deliberate effort to try to control that imagination. I think it's been extremely successful. I, I think we have produced a generation of evangelicals that uh, has a very limited imagination, or thinks it has to have an imaginative life separate from Christian discipleship. And I think that's oh, a great yeah. tragedy. Uh, yeah, you clearly yeah, see I, it otherwise.
1: No, I, no, I think that's. I think that is uh, definitely a tragedy that the. Uh, that we have divided those things, you know, that, and that, honestly, I tell the story in the book. That was one of the the problems that I had with Christianity as a young man. Um, like as a pastor's kid uh, growing up in the South and, you know, a pretty conservative evangelical tradition, like uh, there was this hard line between uh, all the things that, that, that I was drawn to and my, and Christianity. And so it was, it was as if the, the church just kind of like, um, put up with movies and music and songwriting and whatever. They're kind of like, well, those things are nice, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is over here. And so the, the slow realization that, that you know, every molecule in the universe belongs to the Lord and that, that, that we are, uh, that there is a seat at the table for the nerdy kid who likes fantasy novels. That was the thing that I didn't know as a kid. Um, and it was because people were so wary of sure. the imagination, but a redeemed imagination is a powerful thing, you know? And well, so, and uh, a necessary part
0: yeah. of what it means to be the imago dei, uh, I mean, yeah. eventually, uh, that imagination in, in my theological anthropology, uh, uh-huh. I think that imagination, uh, to kind of misquote Dorothy Sayers, will out. It, it's yeah. go, It's going to come out. The question is whether uh-huh. it comes out in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way. By the way, one yeah. of my favorite anecdotes in your book because this just makes perfect perfect sense to me. Uh is the fact that your grandmother was confused about your reading anyway.
1: Ah, that's right. That's right. Yep. She was uh she asked me what kind of books I liked and I said fantasy novels and what she thought I meant was romance novels. <laughs> so she was very worried about me. Um but yeah, there was this uh, there was for sure this like hard divide and you know, I've gone and played uh, I play in England and uh, Sweden and the, the UK in general a fair bit. And, you know, there seems to be over there, pe- there can be uh, a real wariness to the arts. Like yeah. the arts are kind of like seen as like, well, you know, OK, that's great and all. But what we've got to do is we've got to, you know, you know, preach the gospel and there, there can't be any questions. There's just got to be this straight, straight thing. And and I get it. Like, I, I understand, like, there we do need that, too. Uh, but to put the air so far on that side that the that it it's just sucks the color out of what it means to be a Christian or, or the our ability, you know, our ability to exercise that that muscle of imagination and wonder yeah. uh, is a, is a sad thing to me. You know, so I kind of went like want to push back gently and say, hey, we still need songwriters and artists and filmmakers and these things like that. that that's it's one of the ways that that God is is calling to us, you know.
0: Yeah, I found myself. uh, uh, I guess that's you know. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say I found myself uh, in in one of those moments that that became a parable. I was in Dresden in Germany, and I was with a group of evangelicals. I was actually giving a lecture on um, the Protestant Reformation and the revolution in art, and uh, so we were in an art museum. After that, we went into a uh, a church, and the church had a Madonna, and uh, so. I was uh, in a discussion with a a few very intelligent evangelicals about why evangelicals have been concerned about the Madonna, but at the same time, artistically, it was an incredibly compelling moment, Uh, even just in the history of Western art, knowing what this Madonna meant. And so we were were kind of working towards how are we going to think about this when another woman came up beside us and then pulled a veil over her head and bowed down to it and then immediately mm. we saw okay it, this is like a parable it, so you mm. can understand why the reformation puritan tradition recoils yeah. at that and says none of this and uh, uh-huh. and so i think there's a there's at least a lingering part of that but but some of it began to sneak back in and i don't i don't mean uh in the visual arts uh and uh and depictions of the madonna it began to sneak back in in imagination with uh, John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress Mm. uh, in the Mm. English-speaking world. And so before that, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Protestant exercise uh, in uh, any kind of allegory or imagination. And it's very restrained. You know, it's explicitly in biblical categories. But, you know, uh, Pilgrim's Progress became one of the three books that almost every reading literate family in Britain had. It, It began to shape the Christian imagination of Britain.
1: Wow, that's, that, see, that's cool. I did not know that. And was, was Milton after Bunyan? I don't know the timeline.
0: Well, you can say that in the flow of Western history, they're basically contemporaneous.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, because I would say the same thing about Milton. Because he, what, he Was Milton Catholic?
0: Uh, Milton was Anglican. Uh, he was, and, yeah, that's yeah, what I thought. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And, and uh, um, the, the, th- the point there is, by the way, that, uh, that Milton was read by fewer than Bunyan. But, uh, but English professors love Milton far more than Bunyan. <laughs> I, I happen
1: to like Milton way more than Bunyan, too. I'm no expert, but uh, allegory always makes me fall asleep. Um, as soon as—like, it's funny. It, whenever people call the Narnia books an allegory, I always kind of stop them and go, no, 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 that's not allegory. It's not allegory. It's not the same thing. Uh, just because as soon as I feel, I sense that, well, here's a menu, and each each, each of these things is going to represent right. another thing. Right. Uh, it just kind of like the storyteller in me kind of snoozes. But— uh, I, I'm, a, I'd never considered that before. I didn't know that, that, um, that was one of the first works of imagination. And it really does work on the imagination. Like in it, like, I know that there are plenty of things from Pilgrim's Progress that have, uh, entered the language, you know, um, yeah. I, uh, like, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, just so, think, in the imagination so, yeah.
0: of that book, just think of the fact that the entire point was that Bunyan wanted his readers to see things, to have pictures mm. in their mind, uh, yeah. in the characters and, and in the stories. And by the way, I think Jesus intended that. For example, with the parables, yeah, uh, he wanted he wanted his hearers to see things, and uh, that can be a dangerous power. It, it 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 obviously calls for Christians to think it through carefully.
1: Yeah, I think so, um, but not so carefully that like you you err on the side of just not doing it at all. You know what I mean? Like I I think yeah. I think that's the scary thing. Is it's scarier to me to imagine people going well. The imagination can be used for evil, so let's just not use it at all. <laughs> that, that feels like a more dangerous position than, hey, this is this thing that God, that is a part of who we are as image yeah. bearers. Let's, let's use it and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do his work in us. You know, that I, I was like when I wrote my fantasy novels. That was what I tried to do was sit down and go, I, I don't want it. I don't want this story to be an allegory. I want the, but I do want this story to wake up longing in people for the kingdom, even if they don't have a word for what that is, what I want it to do is to, to pique that longing. And so, uh, I sat down to write the very best story that I could write. And, and I wrote the story that I was like 12 year old, Andrew would want to read this story. Um, dragons and sword fights and big adventure and all that kind of stuff. And then it was a daily act of trust that somehow or another, I'm the Holy spirit is a better author than I am.
0: (laughs) And so I'm going to allow him
1: to kind of guide me through this process. So
0: you know, it's very interesting that you mention uh, 12-year-old Andrew, and at one point you mentioned 13-year-old Asher, your son, uh, writing uh-huh. a song for him. Uh, there is a pattern of, uh, of early adolescence and the imagination that I think is just really important. Uh, uh-huh. You know, children will listen to just about any story, and their imaginations are vivid but limited— but a part of what happens in adolescence with cognitive uh, and, and complex uh, uh, thinking, analytical thinking, is that there is all of a sudden this massive capacity for imagination, and, and it's going to be met by something. Just think of all these kids uh, who are so deeply you know, in, enmeshed in narratives, whether they're coming from video games or, 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 mm-hmm. or whatever. And uh, I think the, uh, the evangelical Christian church misses an incredible opportunity there. Uh, to say you know what 's being awakened within you is an imagination that 's actually calling out to god yeah, it 's actually calling yeah. out to the triune God, and uh, he has given us an imagination by which to perceive the world through stories and yes there's there 's every reason uh to go to sword fights and uh and mountains and valleys and uh and, and naming evil and good, because that is the thing you know in in the the condemnation of God upon Adam and even and their sin he 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 said they now know the difference between evil and good well you know a a four year old can know something about the difference between evil and good, mm-hmm. but a 14-year-old knows the distinction between good and evil in a whole new way. I think we need the imagination mm-hmm. to flesh that out. I think there are things that must be learned by the imagination that can't be learned by a, a didactic exchange.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and that's the which, you know, it's, it it always mystifies me when people talk about how, well, fiction, I don't read fiction, you know, Why why should we read fiction when when Jesus used fiction to teach you know uh and and i'm always i always want uh I wish more pastors read fiction, you know what I mean like I think sometimes I pastors wish more can... pastors read yeah <laughs> but go ahead yeah it's true, uh but you know there is something about about a, um a theology that is rounded out by an understanding of story too, you know what I mean oh
0: absolutely and, and
1: i th- and i I think yeah. that's part of why. I gravitate to people like CS Lewis or Walter Wonger Jr. or whatever like like there there's something about their wh- whether or not you align perfectly with their you know the finer points of their theology there is something a, 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 a about the way that they are able to communicate the gospel that is different than someone who is just systematic and like and I think I might have said this in the book but like I I really think that uh there are just like there are things that mathematicians uh, know about the mind of God that I will never know, (laughs) you know, like when they kind of wade inside like the wonder of some incredibly complex equation and they go, Oh my goodness, the mind of God is so, so fascinating. I feel the same way from a story standpoint. Like when you fight your way through a novel, uh, and you write the end and you sit there and go, wow, this whole thing just happened in my imagination. And, and somehow I was able to shepherd the character's Uh, from one place to another and help them to change and also give them some free, weird, mysterious agency in the process. Like, there's this way of knowing that story uh, gives us that you can't know anything any other way. Uh, So, yeah, I I do think that, like, the, the more we can um, correct that, that, that wariness that, that I think the church can have sometimes about the imagination, the better I, you know, and the thing is, uh, I was talking to somebody a few years ago, I'm not Catholic at all, but I, somebody asked me what I was reading. And I said, oh, I'm reading Chesterton and J.R.R. Tolkien and, uh, Flannery O'Connor and Merton. And there was one, there were five people, I forget who, who they were. And it didn't occur to me until I listed them that they were all Catholic. And I and I was like, whoa, that's weird. And, and they're the all very laughed. Catholic. <laughs> yeah, very Catholic. Um, and the person laughed, and they were like, oh, well, it's because you're an artist. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, well, the one the, one of the things that, that the Catholic imagination, the, the Catholic Church has been good at, is mystery, and and this uh, realization that there is. Uh, that the imagination is one of the ways, not just that we call out to God, but that he, he speaks to us, you know? And so, uh, yeah, Yeah, that's a part
0: of that Reformation divide. And, uh, 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 there is a, a, so one of the, uh, the fun forms of reading that I allow myself is the classical murder mystery. Oh, me too. and I love those by the Murder Club, the, uh, the English-speaking writers, and you mentioned so many of them uh, you know, in, in your book. And, and there actually was a Murder Club with Dorothy Sayers and you know, all these <laughs> yeah. people uh, you know, sitting around uh, sharing their, their murder mystery stories. And uh, uh-huh. there's a professor at the University of Notre Dame, now dead. He was a philosopher and uh, a, a, a very uh, insightful intellectual. His name was Ralph McInerney. And, uh-huh. uh, and Ralph McInerney wrote a book one time on why only Catholics can write good murder mysteries. Huh. And uh, I was kind of offended by that as an evangelical, but he persuaded <laughs> me in his book, and he said it is because in the Catholic sacramental world we can deal more deeply in an evil mind, and then go to confessional, whereas the Protestants, are, you know, have this uh, <laughs> have this uh, reluctance to enter into the mind of the evil characters. And uh, but the mm. other the other point is very useful for us because Ma- McInerney said. The person who can't write a good murder mystery is a secular mind um, mm. because there are no fixed categories of good and evil. And this only works if murder is really horribly evil and if the yeah, evil wow. doer needs to be caught.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I feel like Dorothy Sayers wrote about the murder mystery and how it's like it was one of the most Christian forms of storytelling. Right. Because it's about the search for truth. Like good and evil are are pretty apparent, you know what i mean and right. and the tr and it's about it's it's only satisfying when when the truth triumphs at the end, you know so it's this ex- once again exercising the imagination like uh within reason, obviously, but the uh there is something that happens in me when i when I see the that moment in yeah. the uh in the movie or whatever when when the good guy finally says no this is how it happened and the truth is exposed i think that's a, a way of waking up longing in us for yeah for that in the world you know, it's, it's a longing for justice and for the world to be made right and so again it all circles back to the fact that the imagination is a, is is a real gift that the lord has given us to teach us about who he is
0: Well, let's face it, it's not that often that Christians have the opportunity to talk about British murder mysteries and the use of the imagination and sword fights and fantasy novels, but that's exactly why I've been looking forward to this conversation with Andrew Peterson, and it's exactly why you're listening to it right now. You know, I was, uh, years ago, years ago now, um, My wife asked me to watch uh, a television program with her. It was the last episode of a long drama on television. This is back before the digital age and all its options. This is one of those old network series. It was called St. Elsewhere. Oh, I remember that show. Yeah, Yeah. it was about an urban hospital. It had all these finely drawn characters. And uh, Uh it it, it was actually very well written by the standards of the day. And uh, it it went on for years. And all these moral dilemmas and all these and in the structure of the story was the fact that there is this one doctor who was a widower and he had a little boy who was about 10 or 12 years old who was uh, severely autistic and so the boy was often in the background and then when they'd have a family scene you know he'd be there but he was disconnected from the family cute kid but just just profoundly autistic and uh, the series final episode was uh, was well-advertised. Everybody knew this was going to be the end of the story. And so uh, my wife and I sat down to watch it, and we got to the very end of the story. And it had always opened up with the hospital in a snowstorm in Boston.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, and that's what it closes with. And it's one of the most unexpected emotional moments of my Life engaging culture, I would say. Hmm. When all of a sudden it turns into a snowball, uh, hmm. one of those things you shake and the yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you know it, it it falls. And the hospital is a building inside this snow dome, and uh, all of a sudden you see the autistic boy holding it. And the entire series had been in his mind when it appeared that he was disconnected
1: from. Wow, that is great! How did I never? I've never heard that. That's amazing. Well, you just
0: need to watch the last yeah. few seconds, and I realized it. Just it really had a powerful impact on me. I mean, I I don't quote anything from television, but here I am, and it's because mm-hmm. I realized there isn't a person around us who isn't fueled by that imagination. Mm-hmm. That imagination will out. It's it's there, and. Yeah. Uh, you know you in your, in your book, there are two huge questions that that you deal with. I don't think you answer either one of them to my satisfaction, so that, that's why I'm looking forward <laughs> to this conversation i get I get, to, I get to no I, this is the fun thing no no author can say everything in the book, so I get to ask you what you meant so sure. uh one of them is, I really appreciate the distinction you make between Christian art and art by Christians, but I think you're amazingly honest i mean you, it's it's not an elitist dismissal. I mean, you have some moments of that, but, uh, and, and thankfully so, I would say, but, uh, but when you talk about the difference between Christian art and, uh, and, and Christians who are artists, uh, is that an absolute distinction? I mean, I, 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 I know in your work, you want your work to be judged by the standards of, of, of music, but most of the people who listen to you are, uh, are Christians. How does, how does that yeah. work?
1: Well, I think what I was going for in that in that description was was kind of confessing the fact that when I first moved to Nashville 22 or three years ago, whenever it was, I, you know, I think it was cool to say, I'm not a Christian artist. I'm an artist who is a Christian. You know, I'm a I'm like I'm a plumber who is a Christian. Uh, you know, there's no Christian pl- plumbing. So, you know, it was that kind of like oversimplified uh, way of looking at it. And I, I think that was what what never set right with me was I was kind of like, yeah, but I am actually singing about Jesus most of the time. <laughs> like, like right. there is, some, there is a difference. Like there's a difference in calling. There's a difference in execution. Like, like, you know, you, if you're loving your audience, well, then you have them in mind. So I have a listener in mind when I'm, when I'm writing a song and, and, uh and I, and I began to notice it a few years ago when, you know, I have, you know, I go to church with people who play, who have mainstream Music careers and go out and play country music or bluegrass or pop music, whatever it may be. Who are you know faithful members of their church and serve in beautiful ways, but their music isn't necessarily explicitly about the gospel. And I think that's okay um, if if that is what God has called you to do. But I never felt that way. I always felt like, oh, no, I mean, I don't try to write about Jesus. This this is just a story that I cannot not talk about. Uh, and I think that's just because this the. Per- peculiar calling that God has given me. And so that, so that made me feel a little disingenuous when I would say, well, I'm not a Christian artist and I'm an artist who's a Christian, but I'm kind of like, yeah, but I am playing in churches and I am like trying to tell the gospel story in the most creative way that I can. And so, uh, anyway, I think it was a, a combination of going and seeing, like we were in France a few years ago and I saw Notre Dame before it burned. Um, and, yep. and, you know, listening to Bach and, and things like that. And I began to realize like, there is nothing wrong with Christian art. Uh, There's nothing like in that, in that dichotomy between I'm, I'm not a Christian artist. I'm an artist who's a Christian. It kind of like, there's some snootiness in it where it's like, well, Christian art is lower somehow. And man, I just, I just don't think that anymore. I think that like the church is responsible for some of the greatest works of art the world's ever known. So there's no reason whatsoever for a Christian to be embarrassed about the art that the church has produced. I think that um, that the contemporary art can be <laughs> deserves some of the criti- the criticism that it gets. Um, but if you look at the church as a whole, it's kind of like no the 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 Lord has used. The church to to bless the world and the arts in in many ways. So it kind of changed my thinking. It made me go, I am uh, an artist who is a Christian who is usually trying to make Christian art is the way that I kind of landed on it. Like it's it's a combination of the two things.
0: And you know, there's a part of art history here that is is really important because uh, throughout the history of uh, of Western art, most art was produced by patronage, and that patronage was explicitly Christian. So. Uh, and not just the popes; it was also the, the nobility, and the aristocracy that had the money to commission art. Uh, in a deeply, um, a, a deeply Catholic world, in particular, they would often do this because it was uh, believed to be an issue of merit and uh, and also uh-huh. of, uh, a, a, of of supporting the church and Christianity. So, Christianity, in one form or another, poured untold trillions of dollars into art. Yeah. Christianity doesn't do that anymore. Um, right there, yeah. there's been this split and so there there is no massive overwhelming patronage of the the arts uh, in the christian world and so now we're in a consumer art world that's a that's a very different thing
1: yeah on the other hand though like uh what people think of as christian novels are uh you know, Amish romances, (laughs) that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, we, it's, it's, it's too easy to leave the Tolkiens and the Lewises out of that conversation or the Frederick Beekners out or Marilyn Robinson. Like, so even now, even without patronage, there are so many Christians doing incredible work that even even the mainstream world looks at and says, "Yes, Gilead's an incredible novel. We're going to give it the Pulitzer Prize." You know, um, and so there are believers out there. I think seasoning culture even now. It's just. You know when people say they don't like Christian music or because they don't like what's on the radio I'm just like well you're listening to the wrong stuff like there is right. so much the church is still producing like wonderful songwriters wonderful novels it's just it's not the stuff you you're going to find on the Christian shelf necessarily you know there are Christians you know in who are just writing straight up literature that are I think telling right telling the truth of the gospel in ways that are sneaking past people's watchful dragons and and it's there it's just not what people like when I'm on an airplane and somebody says what kind of music do you do you, do you do I, I it's a very complicated answer because I know if I say Christian music what they think of is going to be different from what I do um, and I think Christians are in the same boat that they they tend to go oh Christian music you mean like you know fill in the blank radio station or popular or whatever and it's like man there's just countless genres underneath it you know they're, they're um, artists just because you haven't heard of them doesn't mean they're not doing good work. Um, yeah. Which reminds me that that uh, when there was a a video that came out a few years ago, I mentioned this in the book, but the Bono and Eugene Peterson were having this conversation oh, yeah. about the Psalms, and the yeah. video is fascinating, and I like both those guys, and uh, and I I know the filmmaker and the producer, they're great, and and there were a lot of good things about it, but when when Bono says Look how honest the psalms are. Why aren't Christians being honest about their divorce? Why aren't Christians writing songs about their doubts? Uh, I just kind of sat there in my chair, like I wanted to wave my arms and say, "We are." Right. (laughs) Like there are so many Christians writing songs about the real, like devastating uh, pain in their lives and and uh, telling their stories in beautiful ways. It's just that it's it's never going to get played on the radio, Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. So I, I, I do think that the church is still responsible for some of the best art that's out there.
0: In one of your chapters, you talk about discernment, which, by the way, isn't just a, a good principle for uh, Christians. It's a biblical mandate. We're, we're mm. called to be discerning. And, uh, you know, at one point in, in the reading your book, Adoring the Dark, I actually wrote at the top the word criteria in question mark. Where are the criteria for discernment? Um, Now, in your book as a whole, I found them in different places. For example, on page 86, uh, you write, where we go wrong is when we tilt the scales away from grace or beauty or excellence as if truth were all that mattered. So you put all that together, though. You've got grace, beauty, excellence, and truth. Uh, Later in the book, uh, as a matter of of fact, in your close, you write about honesty, uh, truth, and beauty as the trifecta of good Christian art. Um, So when you when you're talking about good art versus bad art, you're not just talking about your personal aesthetic judgment. You're talking about enduring principles of discernment.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, And I think that was like the the honesty, truth and beauty thing was was an attempt to get to get to the bottom of why certain people's work got to me. And, uh, right. it was Rich Mullins in particular, but I think that that, that principle applies to the hymns that I love the best. Yeah. I think it applies to the, the novels that I love the most and, uh, that thing. And, and, and do you want me to get into the honesty, truth and beauty thing? Absolutely. The, I mean, I can, I can explain it, but the, 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 I, when I thought about what ca- so captivated me about Rich Mullins's music when I was 18, I think maybe 19 years old, uh, and, you know, was a nominal Christian and believed in God, but just had didn't realize how much he loved me. Um, I, I heard Rich's music and it just completely changed my life. And, and so I've spent the last 22 years trying to figure out like, what was it about this music that got me? And, and what I landed on was that it was, it was Rich's gritty kind of earthiness, his honesty, uh, the fact that he was willing to sing about his own doubts and his own sin. Um, but he didn't stop there. It wasn't just Rich going, Oh, is there a God? uh it was a wrestling it was more like jacob and the angel you know it was like uh those questions rich's doubts were always aimed at god himself it wasn't just like i'm flinging my doubts into the world and as my my friend uh uh pastor in nashville says there's there's faithful doubting and there's unfaithful doubting you know
0: right.
1: um and, and the the faithful doubt is the kind that where where you go god i i don't know but i uh, like uh uh, I believe helped my unbelief. That's faithful doubting, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, so it was this like w- willingness to be completely honest with where he was, where relationships with, you know, he would throw the name of a town or a city into the story, which would suddenly ground it. And, oh, there's a timeline here. Like Rich isn't just being poetic. He's actually yeah. talking about his real life. And so there was an honesty there that got my attention. And then it was uh, beauty because he was a craftsman. And he was a student of good songwriting, and he had this crazy good gift. Um, uh, he had like a Chestertonian wit coupled with this like real ability for poetry, high poetry when he wanted to. And so he he was like a craftsman when it came to songwriting. But then it was not just that, it was that he was also a student of scripture. And so Rich knew the Bible really, really well, and those and scripture shows up in his songs time and time again. So if you've got in one song, somebody singing about Kansas and their own struggle with doubt, and it's written like as well as a James Taylor or Paul Simon song, and you can tell the guy's been reading his Bible. <laughs> I think that there's just something about that those three things together that if you take just one of them away, uh, you know, if you take the, the scripture part out, what you've got is is good pop music, you know? It's like Paul Simon, yeah. who does, you know, write with beauty and he's very honest, but there's no like really grounding truth of scripture in there. Or if you just have, if you take out the, uh, the, uh, the honesty and you've got truth and beauty, what you've got is a lot of the old hymns, which are really fine. But I think that they're losing the ones that really get you is when you hear about how, you know, the guy that wrote it as well with my soul wrote the song after his family died, you know? Um, uh, you get this, like, groundedness in these songs that is really amazing. Or you can sense whenever you sing the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone, yeah. prone to leave the Lord I love, that that guy knows what that feels like. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? yeah. And so so there's this honesty that's really there in some hymns that is powerful. And so, and then if you take out the the excellence or the beauty, and you've got honest songs that are scriptural, then you've got, you know, kind of so-so, Christian art. You've got the stuff that is kind of uh, the stuff that we think of um, when we roll our eyes at some some stuff.
0: Yeah, can I offer a, a theological perspective on this? So Please, if, yeah. uh, the, I lecture on this a lot because I think the modern Christian mind, especially the evangelical mind, is very fractured thinking about these criteria. And uh, what what I try to remind Christians of is this— if you go to the ancient world, the ancient world could identify the universal virtues. The ancient world could identify goodness as one of those virtues, beauty as one of those virtues, and truth as one of those virtues. But in the uh, in the ancient world, that fitted within the context of uh, polytheism. And so then there's a God of beauty. Uh, beauty comes from that God. Uh, there's a God of goodness. Goodness comes from that God. And, and so uh, you, you ended up with... Uh, with the division between these virtues, and and so a lot of Greek tragedies, and and, and w- when you read these ancient Greek works, they are brilliant. Uh, uh, Aristophanes, you can go, you just go back. They, they, they're brilliant, but but there's no resolution. But what Christianity brought was theism, monotheism, mm-hmm. and uh, there aren't three different gods. These aren't isolated virtues. The the good, the beautiful, and the true are actually united in God, which means that they are indivisible because God's indivisible. So nothing can Oof. be true that isn't beautiful. Nothing can be beautiful that isn't true. Nothing can be beautiful or true that isn't good. And so the Christian task is to hold the universals together. And so I I, I think that that that's very consistent with what you're arguing here. But I, I, I think that uh, when you're looking at Christian kitsch, you're looking at something that if it's not really beautiful, it's also not really true. Uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, portraying Jesus as cute is probably not a good theological idea, any more than it's uh, also not a good artistic Aesthetic. idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, that's that's so true. I don't even know what to say, but except right on. <laughs> um, well, I think five. I think your work's yeah. consistent.
0: I think your argument's consistent with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope so, and I and I think too that there's a, and you're way smarter than me, but like there's a gnostic thing too that, that can happen where um, there's something about the the title of one of Rich's records was Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth, and when I think of his music, I think of the fact that there's this uh, there wasn't a hard divide between uh, earthy, gritty things matter mattered in Rich's songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so something about the groundedness Absolutely. of who Jesus was—you know—the fact that He took on flesh and dwelt among us uh, uh, means that flesh matters, and uh, trees matter, and the world and all of its beauty matters, and what we're headed for is this new creation that matters. And so, like, it, there can be this tendency in some Christian art to 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 kind of shake off the husk of of this or this earthly coil and only sing about these cerebral things you know these ideas without ever really grounding them and oh this thing happened to me the other day at the post office you know and I, and I mm-hmm. noticed that as even as a boy um uh listening to my dad preach like you know I could kind of zone out when he was digging into some scripture but if dad had an anecdote that if he if he was ready to tell a story about something that happened at the feed store um you could feel the air in the room change you know um, because we all know instinctively we live, we need these ideas to be grounded. We need them to matter in the feed store just as much as they matter in church on Sunday morning and uh, right. as as they do in the new creation. So so to have Jesus like completely embody all of those three things, truth, goodness, beauty, and this the grittiness of like real life, like walking through Galilee, um, getting dirt between his toes, that kind of thing is just there's nothing else like it. You know, there's no other religion that can, that can wrap those things up in a person, uh, in that way. And so, so we, we have this wonderful model of, of, of uh, how to also try our best to, to, to incarnate the works that we do, you know, the, the sermons that we write, the paintings that we paint, we have this like, um, permission, so to speak, to, uh, to shoot for all of those things um, in the work that we do and trust that God is going to use them for his glory
0: when i read your book i associated with so much of it but when i read your work here and this particular book uh, adorning the dark and and i look at it and i realize andrew peterson and i've been reading the same books we've been <laughs> we've been looking at the same uh art we've been uh, we've been excited by the same stories but they, the stories come out of Andrew Peterson. They don't come out of me in the same sense. God's given you a gift for all of this to be translated into new stories that are telling the old story, and uh, and that that gives me great joy. But what causes me horrible concern, and I I, I guess I'm speaking here mostly to Christians and Christian parents through this conversation. I see all these kids who don't read anything like this, and I you know, I, I, think of the young Andrew Peterson going to Gainesville and heading right for the science fiction section of the uh-huh. bookstore, and <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about there. I just don't see many kids heading for any section in the bookstore, and it causes me real grief. I, I, yeah. I, I think it's an evangelistic problem in that I think they're not even thinking some of the big stories and asking some of the big questions that Christianity answers.
1: Yeah, I don't even. I, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that to a point. Like, I, I know that I talked to quite a few people who uh, tell me that they didn't start reading until they were 25. And one day they just kind of fell in love with it and read for forever. Um, there's a. have you ever heard of a guy named James Rebanks? He's a shepherd in the Lake District of England who wrote a book called The Shepherd's Life. And it's this very like. Uh, Wendell Berry ish kind of book about community. And it's his memoir about his story as a, as a, you know, you know, 500 years, his family's been shepherding in, in this part of England and, uh, and how he said that, like, as a kid, he looked down his nose at anybody who read books. He just he just didn't he, like people who read books are the people who leave our community, you know, and go to Oxford right, or whatever. Right. And then he got mono. I think it was mono his senior senior year. And he didn't have anything to do but read. And he fell in love with reading and ended up at Oxford <laughs> and then came back. And so I, I do think that, like, it can feel like all uh, oh, these kids, they're not reading anything. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. But I, I'm, I'm a little hopeful that uh, that. There is like there it is a dead end, like the the social media stuff like there, um, you know, if they survive the, the the craziness of high school with social media, there will come a day when they'll be like, uh, wh- what are these books that everybody's always talking about? Or uh, you mean, there was a book that inspired Star Wars uh by Edgar, Edgar Rice Burroughs that was 100 years old. You know, I just do think that like books aren't going anywhere. And and I think that we are. uh creatures that are hungry for good stories and when we don't find them elsewhere i think that eventually you're going to land on a book not necessarily everybody but but like uh i know for myself my three kids my my middle son was the one son who who, uh, didn't read a ton. And, uh, and I just one day had to be okay with it. I had to be like, you know what, you may not love reading like I do, but you can build an Adirondack chair out of cedar and I can't, you know? And so, uh, more than just, uh, encouraging kids to, to read as if that's the only thing I think really, the thing is in a world that is so screen oriented, it's just getting them outside is getting them in contact with, with, with the dirt and with trees. And, uh, uh, I just think there, there's this great book by, uh, a guy named Arthur Bowers. I don't know if you know him, but he, he wrote a book called living into focus. And I think I mentioned this in the book that where he talks about focal practices, this idea that if you were a person who spends a lot of time in front of a screen because of your job, then it is just crucial as a, as a human, as an embodied creature, uh, to, to put into practice things in your life that are going to, connect you with creation and with wonder and whether it's hiking or biking or gardening or beekeeping whatever the thing may be like don't forget you know well as good as stories are those stories are are not uh are, are a part of this larger creation that that sometimes i think we forget about um because we we have this amazing we have disney plus you know yeah. <laughs> so we forget that we also have forests
0: and you have netflix yeah. You're very honest. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, because <laughs> sure. I I think, uh, again, we want to dichotomize people into saying, well, that person, uh, you know, he uh, he's Mr. Rabbit Hole. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, yeah. and that's all he does. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you say, no, you're, you're kind of a normal human being, too. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: And, you know, I love a great like one of my favorite things in the world is when my wife says, can we watch one more episode? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yes, it's going to be a fun night. We're going to sit here and veg for a while. But, you, but I also like uh, we go days in our home without watching right. any Netflix. You know, it's just one of the many things that's kind of around. It's not, it's not something we center our lives on. And, uh, sure. and part of that is, is by the, kind of forcing my own hand by, with these focal practices. You know, like if you, if you have a dog, I was talking to my friend Ben about this the other day. He said his prayer life changed when he got a dog because he had to walk it every morning and that he would get out of his house and go on a a mile long walk with his dog. And that would be the time that he would pray. And so he put into his life something that forced him to, uh, Mm -hmm to, to have a focal practice. And so I, when I started keeping bees, it was like, I didn't do that thinking this is going to be this avenue to like a, uh, you know, a greater wonder in the Lord's creation. It was like, I was sitting next to a guy to, at a, at a, at a dinner at somebody's house who was a beekeeper. And I was like, that sounds cool. I want to try that. And so my curiosity led there. And then the the side effect was the fact that I ended up having this wonderful, kind of worshipful little corner of my life. And so if you have chickens or you keep bees or you have a garden or you're in a community of people who hike regularly, then it 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 give it forces Netflix to to live in its own little corner of your That's life great. instead of being the, the thing. So,
0: you know, yeah. and the t- two more points as the time's coming to a close. One of them is the fact that you really talk honestly about the hard work of uh, of creating And uh, I appreciate that. I mean, you actually dwell on this repeatedly in the book and uh, and intensely where, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, going back to kind of a misquote of Margaret Thatcher here, a writer is one who writes and one who isn't writing isn't a writer, no matter what you call him. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I say somewhere in the book that a writer is, is not even someone who writes, it's someone who finishes Um, because until you know what it's like to actually complete the thing you started out with, and then you can go back and rework it like that is, that is the larger part of the, the writing process to me is the, just the simple endurance to, to cross the finish line. Um, because you could, you could write parts of stories for your whole life. And I don't know that that would make you a writer, um, because you haven't experienced what it's like to, to, uh, to refine, you know, to edit, to look at the story from a bird's eye view, um, to deal with all of the, the dips that come in the, in the writing process. Yeah, it's, it's uh, maybe it's just me, but it is, a, it is a difficult thing for me. I have so much more pleasure in having finished something than the actual work of doing it. Um, and so whenever I hear people say, like, you know, I write because I have to, I always kind of feel guilty because I'm like, nope, that ain't me. I write because uh, I, I write because I got a mortgage to pay, <laughs> and because right. I've made some promises to people that I would turn a thing in by a certain time. And there are moments where it's really fun, but for me, the real satisfaction is is when I'm finished with it and I can hand it to somebody, or I or I right. talk to somebody about what it's meant to them. You know, the, it's the the end game is my favorite part.
0: The other issue I really appreciated and hadn't thought a lot about uh, before, honestly. Was uh, the moral obligation of an artist to the audience, and uh, I was very moved by those passages uh, in the book mm. where you talk about the fact that you are there in one sense to serve an audience. You also give some some good advice as to how an audience can well serve a a, a, a singer or yeah. or for that matter, yeah. a, a, a preacher. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I just want to tell you, I appreciated that very much. I, you, you have thought deeply about what it is that you do in a a way that I, I think would help us all, frankly.
1: Well, thank you. I, I, I know that it's funny. I hadn't thought about that from a preaching standpoint, but I think what you're talking about is where I kind of gently say to the audience, I was like, if you want to see, your favorite artists perform at their very best, then like let them know that they're doing a good job. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like feed them. And, you know, there have been times when I've, I've been like, how does Bruce Springsteen still do four-hour concerts when he's 72? thousand years old you know he's he's so old but he will he will play these rock concerts that are four hours long and and i'm like how does he do it and then when i think about it i'm like oh well it's because they all love you as soon as you walk out on the stage you get this like overwhelming tidal wave of appreciation and love and so as a christian musician sometimes when you go to churches and play the audience it's like they don't know that they have permission to be effusive you know they're very they can be very reserved and it's like the rules are different because you're not in a theater you're in a church and so it can be really like it can take like an hour to get the audience to like clap you know (laughs) to like actually like you know applaud at the end of a song and sometimes there's that thing where like you play the last chord and there's a split second of silence before someone has the courage to start the clapping and in that split second, like the artist dies a thousand deaths. Like you, you fill that little half-second gap with all of the self-hatred you can possibly imagine. Like, oh no, they hated me, and then they start clapping. You go, oh no, they actually like me. And so there's this like, but that doesn't happen whenever I'm playing at a at a uh, cl- at a theater show, you know, or, or it, the audience is really engaged. Like it is just, I get to love them, and they're loving the people that are on the stage, and you end up with this really sweet experience. And from a pastor standpoint, I, I remember my dad spoke at homecoming uh, or maybe no, it was the baccalaureate service when I graduated mm. high school. So we had, uh, you know, my little town in Florida, um, which was, you know, fairly segregated, like most of the churches either, were either black or white, and but they were all together at the baccalaureate service. And my dad had, I had never heard him preach like he did that day because wow. we had the like, the Pentecostals were in the audience, you know, and the, the black churches were in the audience. And there was just like some, a lot of amens. And like, my dad was so on fire. I was like, I've never seen him do this. And it was because we, we work best when we know that we're loved. And, uh, I think that, that I like the days that I really believe that God loves me. Um, I think those are the days when I feel like I am most who I'm meant to be. And so, um, so you can, you can love your if you want to see you want to see your pastor or your uh, your favorite musicians at their best, then make sure that you know they're loved.
0: So, in keeping with that, let me tell you that uh, I have been deeply moved by and encouraged by your music uh, and your artistry for a very long time. And thank you. That has. Uh, That has uh, created for me the great anticipation of having this conversation with you today. And I just want to thank you for the generosity of spirit by which you wrote the book um, and uh, by which we've engaged this conversation. It's been a real privilege. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate your kindness.
0: Well, I'm going to let that be the conclusion today for Thinking in Public. It has been a great joy to think along with Andrew Peterson. If you enjoyed this episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than a hundred of these conversations at albertmuller.com under Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.